we're doing a series through the book of Matthew. For those of you who are not normally with us, <clears throat> it's been a few weeks since our last message, so let me remind you that we are in a mini-series uh, that is introducing uh, the ministry of an Old Testament prophet, one who was the transition into Jesus Christ, uh, who's bringing a new covenant. We enjoy the benefits of that covenant today. But John was the one who appealed to the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah and, and then also receive those same benefits of that uh, new covenant. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, <clears throat> it says, In those days, and these are the days uh, when Jesus was living in Nazareth with his family, so in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, <clears throat> and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is Mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. These past three messages in Matthew, we've been dealing with the ministry of John the Baptist, and we're focusing more on the applications of the passage because of the particular need in Western nations today. For example, in the UK, in Australia, uh, America, we're all classified as Christian nations. Much of our population would call themselves Christian. If you look at the census, that's how it is, and, and yet they contain the same categories of people that made up the ancient nation of Israel, those who also referred to themselves as the people of God. So generally speaking, if a community or a nation today was to experience a ministry parallel to John's ministry, then they would be confronted with what we are calling awakening preaching. Uh, that kind of preaching is different from most of the Old Testament prophets. 
like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who preached to a largely unresponsive people. In fact, throughout church history, uh, that has probably been the most common complaint of God's preachers. Uh, Lord, who has believed the report? I mean, nobody is responding when I preach my heart out. But occasionally, God sends someone in His own timing, whom He equips and possesses in an unusual way to become an instrument of the Almighty in preaching an awakening message to which people will and do respond. When God is working in that way, professing Christians who are really self-righteous or those who have given in to the worldliness around them or simply preoccupied with making a living and getting by in life. All of these categories of people find themselves looking up. They're moving forward almost as if they're drawn by a magnet to listen to the message of such a preacher. John was such a man, and his mission, as we've been looking at, is an awakening ministry. Now, this morning, I want to call your attention then to the last two verses that record his ministry, verses 11 and 12, and I want to preach to you on the climactic emphasis of an awakening ministry, the climactic emphasis of an awakening ministry. There are two things that categorize the climax of John's emphasis, and the first one involves John getting himself out of the way. Any man whom God uses in an extraordinary way like this must immediately get himself out of the limelight because such a man quickly attracts the attention of multitudes. And it can be both overwhelming and distracting from the message he is carrying. So it is imperative that towards the end of his preaching ministry, a man like this should direct people's attention somewhere else and deliberately deflect it from himself. In verse 11, John sets the example for doing that, and true awakening preachers have done that ever since. So what is the climactic emphasis of an awakening ministry? It's when the spokesperson, at the height of his popularity, deliberately depreciates himself and turns people's attentions elsewhere. Now, the statements in verse 11 were made in response to a growing question in the minds of John's listeners. That question is reflected in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, verse 15, where it says that the people had a certain expectation in their hearts, and they were reasoning as to whether John himself might be the Messiah. So as a result of that, Luke records that John responded to them by saying, well, you know, as for me, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice that it was necessary for John to not only depreciate himself, which is the primary application I'm giving you, but it was also necessary to differentiate himself from the Messiah, because people were actually wondering if he might be the coming Messiah. So John had to differentiate himself 
And in John 1.20, he actually said to them, I'm not the Christ. But in addition to depreciating himself and differentiating himself, he also had to deflect the people's attention to the ministry of the true Messiah. So it's the depreciation, differentiation, and deflection of the messenger at the climax of his ministry. I mean, just when the media is gaining traction, just when the news crews are showing up, just when the talk shows are calling and people are throwing donations to raise your ministry to new heights, in that very moment when you can get taken by all of the spotlight of things, an awakening preacher moves away and he gives it to someone else. Turn, if you will, to John 3.25 for a moment. In this chapter, we have a fuller account of how John did this towards the end of his ministry. This is the point where Jesus has been baptized. He's been identified by John as the Lamb of God. And now our Lord's own miracles were attracting far more people than John's preaching ever did. And by the way, as far as we know, John did no miracle. He was not used by God to perform a single miracle. So now the people are attracted to Jesus of Nazareth, or at least they're attracted to his miraculous works, uh, but also to his preaching and baptizing. And at this point, notice in verse 26, some of John's disciples came to him, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, okay, settle down, guys. That's in the Greek. So you need to understand a principle here. A man can receive nothing unless it is being given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. And there's that differentiation again. But I have been sent before him or ahead of him. And at this point, he gives an illustration of his role. Uh, we got a wedding coming up, and you ever notice that when you attend a wedding and uh, the music begins to play, the, the prelude, and everyone's sitting there and they're waiting with anticipation until the moment finally arrives. And then the wedding party emerges and they come on the platform. And you have that climactic moment, that moment that everyone has been waiting for. Every eye turns to look at the best man, right? No, of course not. That's the background to the illustration he's going to give, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase. The bridegroom must increase. The Messiah must increase. And what that means for me, and I, I totally accept this, he says, I must decrease. Decrease when it comes to people's estimation of me. This is part of the climactic emphasis of a truly awakening ministry. Now, in John's case, he not only used the illustration of a bridegroom, 
But on more than one occasion, apparently, he also said, I'm actually not worthy to stoop down and loosen the sandal on this individual's foot. Or in Matthew, he says, I'm not even worthy to carry those sandals for him. I want you to think of what he's actually saying here. Here's the person who is the greatest in 4,000 years of human history. Behind him trail all of the prophets, all of the great men and women of faith. For four millennia, John is the apex of the human race at that point. Now, he didn't claim that for himself. It's not like, it's not like Muhammad Ali who had to tell everybody he was the greatest. Okay? That, now, you remember the Lord himself said, John is the greatest born among women. And yet this greatest of all says that when it comes to the Messiah, by comparison, I'm not worthy to lower myself and touch the lowest part of his body. That is true self-depreciation. And what John said is not by any means an exaggeration. Uh, This is precisely the contrast of the greatest human on earth coming face to face with the one who is God manifested in the flesh. In other words, this is not a contrast between two human beings. We're talking here about the very Son of God. Now, when the Lord's hand is upon someone to perform an awakening ministry, there will be many who will come out to hear Him. For example, uh, I gave you an account from one eyewitness of the thousands in America who streamed to hear the awakening preacher George Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin once heard Whitfield preach in the late winter of 1739. Whitfield was in Philadelphia, and uh, he took his position on the top of the steps of the city courthouse, and uh, below him there was this large public square, and he preached to the multitudes who filled the square and then spilled out into the streets of the city. Well, Franklin was there, and he was quite taken with the atmosphere. So he made his way to the back of the crowd. He said he went down Market Street. He got all the way to Front Street, which was as far as he could go, and still hear the preacher's voice. And then he got up high, and he looked out over the multitude, and mentally he drew a radius around Whitfield, and on the basis of calculating that a person needs about two square feet in which to stand, he figured out how many people would be able to hear Whitfield preach if he was out in the fields. No buildings in the way. And he estimated that it would be at least 30,000 people. And so he wrote, this reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 in the fields. Remember, that's when America's total population was just over 600,000. So about 4% of the population of that nation listened to Whitfield preach in one sitting. So when a man is being used as an instrument to awaken people, there will be crowds like there were for Whitfield or for the Wesleys or for Jonathan Edwards. Tens of thousands will come to hear that kind of awakening ministry. Uh, I think I mentioned William Grimshaw to you a couple of months ago. He pastored in the town of Hayworth, which is where uh, the Bronte sisters lived. 
Grimshaw's ministry filled the church with listeners, and there were so many standing out in the cemetery around the building trying to hear that he knocked a hole through the side of the church wall, and he extended the platform right out through the hall so that he could preach inside, and then he would march outside and preach to the people waiting in the cemetery. Uh, Richard Baxter, from a previous generation, ministered at a place called Kidderminster, and he pastored a church there that could hold a thousand people. Uh, he preached awakening messages that recorded in his book, A Call to the Unconverted. Those kinds of messages aroused people until they actually had to build a gallery in that church, which is kind of like a balcony. And then they build a second gallery, and a third gallery, and a fourth gallery, finally five galleries in that building that already held a thousand people. They weren't coming to hear a rock concert or a motivational speaker. They gathered to hear this thin, unattractive preacher dressed in black who would warn them about their sinful condition if they didn't wake up to the Lord Jesus and His salvation. Now, I'm using those illustrations to make this point. A man like Isaiah was filled with the Spirit of God, but God did not awaken people under His ministry. In fact, when Isaiah asked, how long do I got to do this, Lord? God answered and said, well, just keep going until they're basically sealed up in their judgment because they're not going to hear you. That's just the fact of the matter. But then there are times in the history of God's working with the nations when he desires to arouse people so that they will respond, and you have this very unusual kind of work going on that you can only credit the sovereignty of God with for the difference. And so in the ministry of John the Baptist, you have a man filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, predicted many centuries earlier as the one being sent in the very time of the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord, preaching way up in the wilderness where nobody would think to go to hear a preacher. But just as multitudes came in Baxter's day and Grimshaw's day and Whitfield's day, they flocked to hear this man. And my main point is that when that occurs, there's a great danger to the instrument. What's the danger? The very thing that Charles Spurgeon had to pray against when God was using him at the age of 19 to awaken much of England. Spurgeon had an awakening ministry, and as a young preacher from 19 and down into his early 20s, about the age of my son, Shawnee, uh, he's regularly preaching to thousands of people, trying to come and hear him, and thousands more are in the streets trying to get into the building. So finally, uh, they had to leave the church building, and they rented a theater. Uh, Spurgeon was criticized for that, but he said, well, the people have got to get in, and, and we're going to use this building for the Lord. So they moved in, and he preached to thousands more. And still, the building couldn't accommodate all the people. They're standing out in the streets trying to listen, and they gave people tickets to make sure they could get a seat. Well, that young preacher had to pray fervently that God would keep him humble. The danger to the instrument is human pride. However, you will know when a man is truly God's man 
when you see that in spite of the multitudes and the vast crowds filling the stadium or packing into the auditorium and millions more listening online and streaming the messages, you will know whether he is truly an awakening preacher by the degree to which he deliberately depreciates himself and then turns all of the attention to the Messiah, who's the only one who can do your soul any good. Now, men may pretend to have that kind of humility, right? They might say all of the right self-depreciating things. So how will you know if they really are authentic? That brings us to verse 12. Turn again to Matthew 3 and notice his message about the Messiah. John preached, it says, that the Messiah will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Notice the last word of verse 12 is fire. So here is the second climactic emphasis of an awakening ministry And it's found in the delivery of John's message. And what you have here is really a summary of that message. Now, here's the key. It's a summary of that message in its entirety. You see, it's quite possible, and many have done it, to preach to multitudes under the banner of Christ, to point people to His salvation, and yet leave out critical aspects of Christ's ministry. In other words, they've been unwilling to present the Messiah's ministry in full. But what is the message of a man who truly has the Lord's hand on his life to awaken people by his Spirit? What is that message when it comes to preaching the full ministry of Jesus Christ? Well, The way it's exemplified in John's ministry is when he says that Christ will do for you what I cannot do for you. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but by contrast, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and then to be baptized with fire? Turn to Ezekiel 36 for a moment. Ezekiel 36, when John preached about being baptized with the Holy Spirit, he was not introducing brand new theology into the thinking of God's people. Of course, Orthodox Jews today cannot accept there's more than one person in the Trinity, and that has been the case for centuries. But nevertheless, their Old Testament testifies that there really is more than one person in the Trinity. So when John preached the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the crowds didn't run away because it was unorthodox to them. Uh, Their own prophecies predicted the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For example, here's a passage that has to do with the New Covenant. Let's begin in verse 24 uh, just to get the context. God says, For I will take you from among the nations. That's after he uh, scatters them gather you out of all countries, and then bring you into your own land. Okay, they're back in the land when John preaches. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, God's going to do an internal work in people's hearts here. Well, how's he going to do that? Next verse, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So here's the prediction of a new covenant. And some of its provisions were dependent upon the coming of the Spirit of God to every responsive individual. You get the same thing in chapter 39, verse 29. God says there, I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. All I'm doing is pointing out that John's ministry, on the, uh, uh, preaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, has roots in Old Testament Scripture. Now, of course, the, 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 the primary passage that New Testament writers uh, refer to is from the prophet Joel in Joel 2. Uh, let me read from verse 28. just want to see if you recognize it. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Verse 32, when I do that, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody recognize that passage? Where's it from? Pentecost, right? Uh, Peter quotes this on the day of Pentecost. He's explaining what's happening to the disciples on that day. The crowd said, these men are drunk. And Peter said, no, no, think about it. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Uh, And then he said, you remember, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. You've taken by lawless hands. You've crucified, put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it wasn't possible that he should be held by it, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus Christ, poured out this which you now see and hear. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So what you're witnessing today, Peter says, is the coming of the Holy Spirit and just, if you look, just look back in your Old Testament, it was ful- it's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Now, John was preaching that when he said, the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in that way. So when you come to Jesus Christ, you can be assured that when God saves you from your sin, you become a recipient of His Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer. He gives you the Holy Spirit. This is the case for every single person who believes. Listen, you don't have to wait for it. You don't have to struggle for it. You don't have to fast and pray for the Spirit and look for it in the weeks and months, even years after your conversion. No. It happens to you immediately upon your true regeneration. God gives you eternal life. And he gives you his spirit. John was preaching that aspect as part of his message concerning the coming ministry of Christ. Now, that part of his message is actually very popular today. 
although it's not often preached as something that happens immediately at regeneration, but something you've got to work for. But speaking on Holy Spirit baptism certainly will fill a large auditorium with people. However, let's turn to the other part of John's message in the fact that Christ also baptizes with fire. What does that mean? Turn out of Malachi, if you will, which is one of two foundational passages that predicts the ministry of John the Baptist. We looked at this passage before in this series. It's quoted in the Gospels of John's ministry. Let's start with verse 1 in Malachi 3. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, God says, I send my messenger, and he, the messenger John, uh, will prepare the way before me, before God, meaning Jesus is clearly God. So John came to prepare the way. He pointed people to the Christ. Now, keep reading. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, you have the record of that in John 2. Early in the Lord's ministry, he went into the temple, and remember, he confronted the sellers of sheep and, and doves, and the money changes. He made a small whip, and he whipped those businesses out of there. Remember that? He said, stop making my father's house a house of business. He came suddenly to that temple, and when he did, verse 2 asked the question, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I mean, you're pleading with God to send you your Messiah, but can you handle it when he does? Because when he does, who can stand? For he is like a refiner's what? All right, fire... And like launderer's soap, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he's going to start with the, with the priests. Verse 3, he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them like you do when you put fire to precious metal, like gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. This is what John was preaching. He said that when the Messiah came, it would be with a baptism that included this kind of refining fire. Now, this part of John's message has never changed. And I want to stress again that emphasizing this in preaching is critical in contemporary Christianity. This is a biblical message from beginning to end in scriptural revelation. There's no different message meant for today as if somehow we moved into an entirely new era in God's dealings with people. No. When Jesus Christ comes, He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with this kind of purifying fire. He comes to the temple and He refines. Now, of course, our bodies are the temple today, right? In uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, a local assembly of believers is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says to them, you, that's a plural, you, the church, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 tells us that God is doing two things in the church today for His own glory. Remember this, we studied this in Ephesians. In chapter 1, He's creating a body for His Son, but in chapter 2, 
He's building a temple for his spirit. And when Jesus Christ really comes to the church or into my life, friends, he comes and he truly purifies. Now, thank God that he does. (laughs) Saved people don't want to remain in their filthy condition. Truly regenerated people grieve over their remaining sinfulness. They love the flame because it burns up their iniquity. Well, if you go back to Matthew 3.12, John concludes that message with that kind of emphasis, and he uses now a very sobering illustration. I don't know if you've ever been around a grain harvest before. I I haven't, but I've seen places where there's nothing but wheat fields as far as the eye can see. I've also been in a field uh, that has ripened wheat, and when you take the stalks and you uh, rub them in your hands, the, the shell just blows away. It's very, very light, and only the grain remains in your hand. Well, that light stuff is called the hull or the chaff. And anyone who's been around a harvest knows the vast difference between chaff and wheat. Well, here's the message of someone presenting the work of Christ in its entirety. He doesn't back away from the bit about fire and the distinction between chaff and wheat. In verse 12, when the Messiah comes, he says, this is what's going to happen. He winnows. So if you're talking about a nation like Israel, which is made up of people who all affirm their faith in the one true God, or if you're talking about the early colony of, in Australia where we were all uh, Church of England Christians or even Catholics, or you're talking about 21st century Australia, or 21st century America, still classified as a Christian nation, all right, you would know if this was truly an awakening preacher with the right message, because he would include the same message Jesus Christ gave when he came. The Lord Jesus waded into a crowd, and he drew a sharp line between professing Christians and true believers. In other words, he comes to winnow those people with a winnowing fan. A winnowing fan is a very shallow basket that looks like a fan. And uh, you put freshly harvested wheat in it, and then you toss it in the air, and the chaff just kind of blows away, and the heavier wheat grain falls back into the basket. Well, Jesus comes to winnow people, and if you're talking about the grain that falls back into the winnowing fan, well, he's going to gather that into the barn and and thank God that day is coming. But if you're talking about chaff that blows out and onto the ground at the end of verse 12, he's going to burn it with unquenchable fire. And notice that it's the same person doing both of those things. Remember, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for some of you, but then that same Jesus burns up chaff with unquenchable fire, which simply means those flames will never go out. That's that's an eternal fire. Now, again, this was no new message. This had been taught to these people for centuries. Uh, Psalm 1, you remember, told these people, you've only got two options here. It's either the way of the ungodly 
or it's the way of delight and meditation on the law of God day and night. Now, people, he says, who do that, well, they're like trees, and they're planted by rivers of water, and it makes them fruitful. You can tell who they are, because even when it's drought time, their leaves are, uh, are green. However, he says, the ungodly are not like that, and he makes this comment, they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And he says, those people will not stand in the judgment. Those sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Now, they might do it in an auditorium. And in in auditoriums all across this nation and all across the world in the name of Jesus. But up there, they will not stand in the congregation of the righteous because the Lord only has intimate knowledge of the way of the righteous while the way of the ungodly perishes. That's been the message to God's professing people all through the Bible. You think of what we saw in the book of Revelation. Think of what the Lord said on the the Sermon on the Mount about those who profess to know Him. I'm the else, yeah, we know you. Uh, We've done many wonderful works in your name. Jesus. Jesus said, you know, I'll profess to them, I never knew you. I mean, who are you guys? Why? Because not everyone who gets it right theologically, not everyone who uses the right title for me, not everyone who gets up and calls me Lord is going to enter into the kingdom. But only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. He always puts the emphasis on obedience rather than profession. Now, that is missing, I think, in much evangelical preaching today. And it's wrong to soften a message for the sake of getting a better response. Now, it doesn't mean that we've got to be harsh or unloving. But you know, there are evangelical preachers who will justify their kind of soft evangelism by saying, you know, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Well, that's great if you catch them flies, but terrible theology of evangelism because people aren't really caught for Christ that way. Christ has to catch their minds, and He only catches their minds when they repent, when they change their thinking. You probably don't know the name Timothy Dwight, but uh, Timothy Dwight was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, whom God mightily used in the First Great Awakening. Uh, Dwight was asked to be the eighth president of Yale College, which is known, of course, as Yale University today. He went there in 1795. He died in 1817, so for 22 years, he was the president of that college. Well, when he took over the school, the effects of the Great Awakening had been diluted for a very long time. In fact, the student body was now rife with total rationalism and paganism. So he began to preach sound theology in the college chapel. He began every year with the doctrine of Scripture, and he would ask the students, is this the Word of God or not? It's a great place to start when you're dealing with rationalistic students. Then he developed a series of sermons that he would recycle every four years so that every uh, new class would get the full series. Uh, Those sermons are so sound and so well-studied and biblical, they were actually 
uh, put into a four-volume systematic theology that you can purchase today. But Dwight preached those sermons in order to cover the full spectrum of Scripture, and he did it to lead those rationalistic kids to Christ. And many of them came to salvation through those sermons. In fact, in 1802, there was a terrific breakthrough. Uh, seven years after he had taken the presidency, a student body back then consisted of 225 students. Uh, many of the upper classes had already come to Christ, but within a year, he said a third of them, that incoming class, were truly soundly converted under, under that preaching. Well, Principal Dwight made the observation, he said, few or very few are awakened or convinced by the encouragements and promises of the gospel, but almost all are awakened by the denunciations of the law. In other words, he'd noticed that few people were really awakened by preaching on heaven and grace and love and salvation alone. They weren't really awakened in that way, but they were he says, when they were denounced by the law of God, when the law came down on them like a hammer. Uh, he said he'd been surprised to see how dull and inattentive and sleepy sinners were in a large assembly in spite of the strongest representations of heaven in the Gospels by preachers who had combined the most vivid images of salvation along with a vigorous style of preaching and an impressive elocution. He was surprised how sleepy they were when they were doing that. But you would awaken them with the denunciations coming from the law, and then, he said, you could pour in the oil and the wine of the gospel. John Angle James, who pastored a congregational church in Birmingham, England, in the 19th century, he wrote a book for preachers. It's entitled An Earnest Ministry. James talks about a discussion he was having in his study with a number of ministers who were very well known in their day, and they were all discussing the, the uh, issue of preaching styles uh, that God was using the most to awaken sinners. And James writes, it was pretty generally admitted that sermons on alarming subjects had been the most blessed in producing conviction of sin and real concern about salvation. Uh, the Puritan, Joseph Eileen, published the book uh, 1671. It was so influential that another Puritan wrote about its influence 30 years later. He said that no other book besides the Bible had been so distributed in, in England uh, for the past 30 years. They sold over 70,000 copies of that book. That was in a day when, you know, they had to uh, make every page by hand. They had to set every letter by hand. And of all titles, the book was called Alarm to the Unconverted. In Eileen's church, the, they put the pulpit in the center of the nave, and they built galleries all through the building around that pulpit. Why? Well, because he was preaching alarm to the unconverted, and they were responding. When those old awakening preachers were used in that way, the churches filled up and the galleries filled up, and those men were unwavering in preaching the full ministry of Christ. There's a chapter in Eileen's book called The Miseries of the Wicked. It'll make your hair stand on end. Uh, he says, the first misery of the wicked 
is simply that God himself has engaged himself to be against you. He writes, he is against you with his face. He is against you with all of his attributes. His power is against you. His truth is against you. If he is true and faithful, you must perish if you keep going the way that you do. His wisdom is against you. He has applied all of his intelligence to preparing the arrows and the ultimate weapons that will be to your destruction. And every moment, there is but a step between you and eternal death. That's the kind of preaching that awakened people in the 17th century. It's the kind of preaching that will awaken people today. Now, you will know when you are truly faced with awakening preaching. Because the spokesperson who's being used by God's own choice will attract multitudes of people, and yet he will deliberately depreciate himself, point them to Christ, and not cut short his message on the true saving ministry of the Messiah. He will include the blessings, yes, but he will also include the alarms. And then pour in the oil and the wine of God's grace. Let's bow for prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I do want to just ask you to reflect for a moment this morning on your own spiritual condition. Just in the quietness between you and the Lord, just think about your condition and ask yourself, am I prepared for the winnowing of the Son of God? In the day when he separates between the sheep and the goats, are you prepared? Are you certain? Are you sure? Based on Scripture, that in that coming day you will stand in the congregation of the righteous. Now, if you're saying to yourself, I'm just not sure. I don't have that kind of assurance. I need help. Please speak to one of us after the service. Grab one of the elders. Myself, Pastor Brian, Pastor Jesse, Pastor Paul. We, we're here to help. We want to help. Let me add a word to those who truly are Christian people. If you're saying, yeah, I really am a, a believer. I do you recognize what it means if your life is totally characterized by unrighteous living? I mean, in general... Before the Lord, you're not really interested in His will and living a righteous life. You kind of just want all the benefits of being a Christian. Well, I want you to know that it means that your profession is suspect at best. So are you prepared to really, I mean, really give the reins of your life to Jesus Christ? Are you prepared to have the assurance of salvation that comes with a surrendered life? You know, when people really yield to the Son of God, it greatly increases their assurance because now they've got all kinds of Bible verses to back up their confidence. doesn't mean your salvation is based on works by any means. But there is an assurance that comes with a totally yielded life. Now, your only other option, my friend, is to stay under the warnings of Scripture that say that your profession may actually be false. And that's what I'm concerned about this morning. 
And the answer is to pour out your heart to the Lord. To tell Him that you accept His message in its entirety. That from now on, you want to live a life of trusting and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you want to trust Him, yes, but you want more than that. You want to obey Him. So tell the Lord to fill you with the knowledge of His will and then empower you to live by that will as it's revealed in Scripture. And again, if we can be of any assistance to you, please don't hesitate to ask. Father, we thank you for the clear message of your word. Bring us back to our senses that we may serve you wholeheartedly, that we may be glad to obey any directive that you give us, that we as your people would wake up to our call to live a holy life in this unholy, ungodly world. And may we truly represent you before this world and take as many with us as we can on that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to conclude with a song that we might often start a service with. It's a song of worship, and it's an appropriate response, I think, that just as John the Baptist saw Jesus for who he really is and desired his audience to see Jesus as he truly is, then we also need to recognize that, just as uh, we're told by Apostle Paul that one day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. And so we need to see him and respond to him as appropriately as we've been challenged. So we're going to sing together across the land. Stand with me, please. Let's sing. Mm -hmm.